Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's writing both timely and timeless. So don't forget your luggage, don't think about 4 plus 4, and join us on our journey through The Color of Magic and The Complete Discography. So, how do you say it? Is it Atuin? Good question. I've always thought of it as Atuin. Yeah, I thought of it as Atuin as well. My brain goes Atuin? Kind of like a sneeze? Which Mm -hmm. probably is right, honestly. I don't know. (laughs) Or Atuin. Hmm. That's the two ways my brain goes. That sounds a little bit too, like, fantasy. Mm. Isn't that exactly what he's going for in this one? But we also True. have to think we also have to think UK English pronunciation. So they'd probably diphthong a little bit at Tuin. That does indeed sound like a sneeze. Uh, <laughs> is it bad that I just googled out to internal pronunciation? I mean, I guess no we shame. could actually do research beforehand. Uh, that that would be that would be silly. Let's talk about how a lot of people think that Color of Magic really isn't a good entry point into the Discworld universe. Honestly, I could see that. I I could see both. If this was my first Discworld book, or if this was what I thought all of Discworld was like, don't know if I would have continued on with it. But I'm aware that it's part of a much larger picture, so I, I did enjoy it for what it was. Yeah. This one definitely does not feel like what Discworld usually feels like. it. Granted, I haven't read them in an extremely long time. It feels a little bit more like Xanth or something like that to me, where it's just the the pure parody. It was actually my first book of Discworld, and probably the reason why I put it down and didn't pick it up again for a couple more years, because it was fine. It was a weird fantasy novel and then i read guards and a few other books and came back to color and was like oh that's where all of this stuff comes from okay so seeing it in context i think is is very useful but as our resident newcomer uh justin what do you think well when i i told multiple people i was going to be starting discworld with color of magic and the actual <laughs> resounding the resounding reply through my friend group was, really? Eh? And to be <laughs> honest, I like for the most part I enjoyed the book. However, I think if it was like if I had done this completely blind and like read through the first book, or if I'd read through color and just like based on this would I want to read the next book? I'd probably, like, it wouldn't be a huge priority for me. Okay, if I'd read this maybe when it was coming out, I might have been giving it a little bit more thing, or giving it a little bit more leeway. Um, And I probably would have put it on, like, oh, yeah, I'll pick it up in, like, a year when it comes up. But I wouldn't have, like, immediately, like, pre-ordered it, or, or, like, pre-ordered it, or picked up the next book at a library if it was out. I think also there's a interesting aspect of I think the fact that there's 40 more books makes it kind of additionally daunting because if you're only reading color to start and then you're looking at it saying, "Wait, there's 40 more of this?" Like this wasn't bad, but like 41 of them? Squints? Yeah, Terry, Sir Terry is on record as as saying that this was his sort of ham-handed attempt to do um, Blazing Saddles but Conan, which is a weird combo. Uh, I, I think that, like, the Conan bit 
is like really only evident in the middle arc, the middle act of the book. And I think it's a lot more. I think I think when we get through the structure of the book, I, I've I've mentally categorized them into three different subgenres. That's fair. Yeah, it it kind of leaps around. I will say that part of the reason that I struggled a little bit with this book is like absolutely none of the fantasy is like the type of fantasy like the fantasy that he is doing a parody of is not the type of fantasy that I would accept through like D&D and I've only encountered it I've only done D&D because I wanted to do RPGs like it's not my style of fantasy necessarily so that was a little bit I probably missed a lot of jokes and also wasn't enjoying it as much. And Aaron, your point about Conan is actually interesting because one of the things we'll see with the Light Fantastic, which is up next, is that there is a much, much better Conan in that one. What? (laughs) Wait, so we get another barbarian character in the next one? How many are there? Yes. Cohen the Barbarian is There's a thousand like times better. Yeah, Cohen, and he actually has a, an entire band later on. And I feel like that's one of the things where we start to see him honing in on what he actually wants to be doing, because it's a much more clever satire on the Conan trope. Yeah, I agree. I think that, that the color of magic has a lot of seeds for what Discworld becomes, but it really is on the parody side of parody versus satire, which we can, you know, dive into at a later date, probably. Yes, very much. So should we talk about the book? Yeah. Justin, I would love to hear your summary. So, um, I can, I can like summarize this book in like five minutes. Um, or at least try to. Um, and feel feel free to interrupt me. We start with a turtle. We get we get this wonderful turtle that our show is named after, a twin, a twin. We we will. I, I I don't think I will be able to figure out what if somebody actually has a good pronunciation for this. Please leave it in our please leave it in our comments or something. But we get this nice turtle, and so when I started reading this. I don't know why, but I got Discworld and Rimworld originally, like, confused just, like, in my head. I was trying to picture what Discworld looked like because I was, for some reason, imagining, like, Halo. And then I googled, like, Discworld, and then I saw, oh, there's a turtle and there's a, there, it's just a disc. Okay, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and then we Excuse me, there's elephants in between. Oh, yes, there, there are the four elephants in between propping them up. And then we go to a city on fire. Ankh Morpork, um, I will probably say, is my favorite part of this book. The this this fantastically bustling city is where we meet our. I'd probably say our two, yeah our two primary characters in the book, um, Rincewind, who is a failed wizard. I don't think we actually see Rincewind. Do actually any actual magic in this book? Uh-huh. We're gonna have to argue nope. about that later. He he's clever. I so he does some good people magic though. He he is. I think Rincewind's best trait is his incredible survival instincts. Like more so than any like intelligence or anything. He, that dude just wants to live. He starts off as the tour guide and then eventually unwitting protector of two flower who is the disc's first tourist and yeah we've got this uh we've got a nation from the bottom of the rim unfortunately there is some shenanigans over whether people from his homeland want him to die or want him to live but rincewind has been told that he needs to live through some Comedies of hilarity, including exchange rates, monetary value, and a... Okay, we're going to have to sidetrack here because 
Goddamn, we have to talk about the luggage. We'll, we'll get to the, the, the principal characters. Yeah, okay. um, so, what, a, what a good so dog. The um, Assassin's Guilds and the Thieves Guild both try to murder slash steal from slash extort to Flower. And in a very, a very abbreviated, they burn the city down. Leaving Rincewind and Two Flower on the road and making their way through here. Or making their way through the rest of the disc. As Two Flower continues his, continues his vacation. This continues through what we would, what I consider the second big chunk of the book, which is where they meet Hrun the Barbarian. Oh, this is the D and D bit. He he's a he's this a is very straight up D&D. just a D and D dungeon. He's a, he's a very smart D and D. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they go they act it's, they it's fight sword and sandal. They yeah. fight an eldritch entity within a dungeon. They also piss off some elves. They or just Rincewind? Well, yeah, Rincewind. Okay. <laughs> um, and continue their journey. Frun is. Are much more sa- as much is savvy about the ways of the world, but then our intrepid adventurers encounter the Wormberg, which is it's a cross between a Dragon Riders of Pern parody and a Star Trek Planet of Hats episode. <laughs> That's a very good description. We we get our dragons um, in in Discworld, which aren't actually dragons, but are in fact. Belief, belief magic psychic constructs eventually the um Hrun is captured and Rincewind has to make a heroic rescuing of everybody and then we get another time skip to um Rincewind and Two Flower nearly washing up at the end of the world but they are in fact saved by the circumference <laughs> and they meet a water troll who then sells them to the, or not sells them, but gives them over to, oh gosh, what's the name of the city? Krull. Krull. Gives them to the city of Krull, who in fact require sacrifices, because they're a city on the edge of the, the disc, and they have a, a spaceship. And the spaceship is requiring two human sacrifices who have been specifically identified as Rizwin and Two Flower. A very interesting use of both spit, water, and time magic. The They are able to escape and are able to pose as what are called, I believe, Chelonauts. And our book ends with them... Becoming the first astronauts of Discworld. Unwittingly. Unwittingly. Them. I think it's just Two Flower and the Water Troll. <laughs> Rincewind is falling off the rim. Oh, oh yes, yeah. yes. And ends up in a tree. Well, or... don't, don't get ahead of yourself. Oh, no, okay, so the, that is, like, the three pages of, like, like Fantastic I've read so far. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, Well, no, he okay. is in a tree at the end, right? Oh, was that, like, an excerpt? I think that was, that it was probably an excerpt. That was not marked clearly enough, book. Because I... That was not, no. no. that... We end with, below the whole universe twinkled at Rincewind. There was great Atuan, huge and ponderous and pocked with craters. There was the little disk moon. There was a distant gleam that could only be the potent Voyager. And there were all the stars looking remarkably like powdered diamonds spilled on black velvet. The stars that lured and ultimately called the boldest toward them. The whole of creation was waiting for Rincewind to drop in. He did so. There didn't seem to be any okay, yeah, alternative. Yeah. Okay, but he wasn't a tree before that. Okay, so that was not a clearly marked defining, like, oh, hey, this is the start of the next book. Wait, that's that's the end of the first book, right? Yep, okay, that's the, that's the end of the first book. Okay, he's in a tree in the first second... book. He's in a tree, and then he meets Scrofula, who's filling in for death. They have a bit of an argument, then he oh. falls out of the tree. Because he, fall- he falls twice, basically. This, this right. book is... Right. 
Rincewind. Right. It also like literally said the end and then it had four and I was like, that's weird. He goes from tree to tree. The the thing that, that um Justin sort of skipped over is the framing device of mm-hmm. uh the gods yes. playing dice. Because this the entire book is the lady and uh fate having a bit of a duel uh over dice. You mean yes. playing D and D. They're, they're like playing. They're playing like competitive D and D, but yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, they're probably playing a war game. Yeah, they are. Considering the publication date, yeah, probably. Are they playing Hero Quest? So, speaking of things that this book and Terry Pratchett is reminiscent of, one of the things that always stands out to me is Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide. That I feel like they're in very similar categories, especially with the way that. Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams both used words and gave these like clever descriptions where you read it and you're like, <clears throat> that was funny. And even even the start of this sort of starts in a way very reminiscent of the start of Hitchhikers with the, you know, spiral arm of the galaxy type of thing, which I thought was an interesting parallel. Yeah, a, a big scene setting chunk and then uh, in, in media's res uh, yeah. protagonist. Which is a solid way to start a book. I gotta say, though, I love Terry Pratchett's particular way of, like, framing stuff, especially with Discworld, where it's, like, it makes the world seem both, like, huge and tiny at the same time. Like, the way that he has, like, the astronomer see the start of, like, the fire in Ankh-Morpork. Pork, yeah. And then... I don't know, and also it like ends up linking back into the plot. Very cool, because Kroll comes back in the last section. Yeah. So should we talk about why there is a fire in? Yeah, I suppose we should get into a little bit more detail. I don't remember. Are you talking about in sewer ants? Yeah. Yeah, why it's probably two flowers' fault. Shall we? Shall we introduce sort of our key players here? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So Two Flower comes from the Counterweight Continent, uh, which is a continent that outweighs, well, not outweighs, uh, is about equal in weight to all the other continents on the Discworld because it's mostly made of gold. It's a very prosperous society, but also, like, you can have loads and loads and loads of money as compared to, like, everyone else on the disc and still be, like, relatively low rung there. Two Flower is basically, what is it, an insurance adjuster? He figures out, like, the the odds and what to set. He, he's an actuary. I don't, I don't remember the words. But yeah, he, he's, he does some very real-world typical job with insurance, which is, of course, something that medieval to early modern Ankh-Morkork has never heard of. And he tries to explain it to people there. Well, we'll come back to that. But basically, Two Flower comes from that society and shows up on the docks of Ankh-Morpork knowing a startling amount about it without having absorbed any of like the cultural relevance or importance of it. So he's just there to see the uh, quaint inns and some adventure. Uh, not realizing that both of these are code words for he will be in a lot of danger. I picture him in a Hawaiian shirt. And Justin, do you want to bring his companion along? So the luggage is possibly... Okay, the luggage is my favorite character from this book. Because the luggage is a sapient pearwood chest with many, many legs and... Ceaseless Maw. <laughs> it, it plays hell with physics. It's very loyal. It's a good, good boy. Is it bigger on the inside? Uh, <laughs> probably. Oh, yes. It's, it, 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 it's, this is British, so it always has to have that. Um, and the luggage is... When separated from Two Flower particularly... The luggage becomes an agent of chaotic destruction, with its only goal being to return to Two Flower. And it's a beautiful thing. 
I, I'm taking a look through my my notes because I, I'm reading this on Kindle, so it keeps track of all my notes and marks. I think I have at least three marks on here where I where I just yell the luggage. Something rose up from the murk and ate it in one mouthful. Sometime later, the islanders on a little rimward atoll were amazed to find, washed into their local lagoon, the wave-rocked corpse of a hideous sea monster, all beaks, eyes, and tentacles. They were further astonished at its size, since it was rather larger than their village. But their surprise was tiny compared to the huge, stricken expression on the face of the dead monster, which appeared to have been trampled to death. (laughs) The luggage has a tendency to stomp on things until they're dead. It also it also has um it's like the the teeth teeth of like bleached wood when it's being particularly murderous. Yeah, and it creaks ominously sometimes. It's a utterly fantastic. It, it, it yeah, every time it sh- it shows up multiple times in the book when like I wasn't expecting it to. Or when it was absolutely dramatically perfect. If you do not like teeth and legs, or especially too many of them, I would not recommend image searching luggage Discworld. Uh, yeah, no thank you. I don't need that in my life. Yeah, um... That is, that is rather... There are a lot of miniatures, like for tabletop games... That are of the luggage. Oh, the luggage is basically a mimic, but with extra feet. With extra feet and and loyalty and nigh unto invulnerable. Yes, I'm assuming mimics are loyal to no one. I have not encountered a mimic before. They, from my experience, they are horrible chaos agents who are just there to dick over adventurers who like to look at every chest. Yeah. Maybe that's why I've never encountered one. My GMs are all nice. It's very valid. I should not say that on the record because I don't know. Maybe one of my very nice GMs will eventually put a mimic in the game and I will still think they're very nice. Oh yeah, here's another one. The box didn't appear to be hampered in any way by the ornamental rug draped roguishly over it, nor by the thief hanging from one arm by one arm from the lid. It was, in a very real sense, a dead weight. Further along the lid were the remains of two fingers, owner unknown. Like I said, he he had a way with words. It's a it's a very British dry humor that he he goes for understatement a lot of the time on ridiculous things. That is something I definitely appreciate as the, like, especially with, like, certain fantastical or maybe astonishing things of, like, understatement just adds to that humor. So who else do we have as major players in this book? We should maybe bring up, yeah, t- t- we should go more in detail on Rincewind. Yeah, so so we've already covered that he's a, a failed magician with... Wizard. Uh, yes, wizard. Wizard. Is there a difference with in this the, world? Yes, I, I, that, was a, that was a flub on my part. Okay. That he is a failed wizard. The guess is that were he to actually die, the average magical ability of the disc would actually go up. That's how bad he is at being a wizard. But there's there's a reason for this that's not just pure incompetence, although that's also there in spades. He had the misfortune to stumble upon the Octavo, which is the book left over from the creator of the disc and that carries eight great spells in it. And one of those lodged itself within Rincewind's brain and has scared away any other spell that Rincewind has tried to learn since. Uh, while he has graduated from Unseen University, technically, he cannot actually do magic. And by by stumbled upon, it was more of a college pr- 
prank that they were trying to pull, and he snuck into the the heavily warded room where the octavo was held, and so he sort of brought it on himself, I guess. The one point where his intuition and survival instincts failed him. I'm wondering if that's almost something that he that he got afterwards. Probably his strongest belief is that the world should be logical when it super isn't. And that's almost like my favorite oh God, thing about yes. him. We should harness the lightning. Harness <laughs> the lightning it. lightning is the hammer of the gods. How would you harness it? I need to find that passage. We should find that passage. It's a very good one. Rincewind thinks he ought to be able to harness the lightning, said the picture imp, who was observing the passing scene from the tiny doorway of the box slung around Two Flowers' neck. He had spent the morning painting picturesque views and quaint scenes for his master, and had been allowed to knock off for a smoke. When I said harness, I didn't mean harness, snapped Rincewind. I meant, well, I just meant that, I don't know, I just think can't think of the right words. I th- just think the world ought to be more sort of organized. That's just fantasy, said Two Flower. I know, that's the trouble, Rincewind sighed again. It was all very well going on about pure logic and how the universe was ruled by logic and the harmony of numbers, but the plain fact of the matter was that the disc, world, the disc was manifestly traversing space on the back of a giant turtle, and the gods had a habit of going around to atheists' houses and smashing their windows. Well, and that's actually really funny, too, because you know we, we have the dragon sequence Can we talk where about that? the... Yeah... Where the dragons are fueled by imagination. Uh-huh. Um, and that two flower with this, like, he has this fantastic tourist imagination and imagines the most glorious dragon that ever dragoned. And Rincewind imagines an airplane. I love that part so much. And that's where I'm going to argue that Rincewind accidentally did some serious magic. Because he transported them to a little yeah. alternate universe. I I delight in that kind of bullshit, by the way. Just, like, suddenly go from full-out fantasy land to, like, oh, it's just our world. Okay. What do we do with this? Yep. But, yeah. Also, Rincewind is a lot better off in that alternate universe. He's a researcher who works on, like, nuclear reactors. Well, you know, it it kind of makes sense as an odd parallel. He's, like, presumably respected and probably has a steady (laughs) job. Well, it's like he's he's too logical in the disc world, so presumably he would be just logical enough in the round world. It's so tragic that he has to live in disc world. That's the tragedy of Rincewind. But this is also a thing that I want to put in a button for for later episodes and later listeners, uh, because there's a lot in even just what we just said about that Terry is going to play with later in in later books. Um, high energy magic, for example. Yeah, and some of these things that come up in color end up being discarded or retconned but a lot of it's kept it's just sort of built upon to be something grander and more detailed and sometimes just better maybe a little bit yeah oh and the your passage that you read also brought up a very interesting character uh, namely, the picture imp. I love because the the picture imp. So, Two Flower has a camera. He has a little a little a little box that he uses to produce pictures of his travels. And this is again where Rinswin thinks that things should behave according to logical principles, and thinks that. This box must be, you know, contain uh, pieces of paper that are specially treated so that they react to the light. And no, there is a small imp who just paints really fast. Can we have a quick spoiler aside? Sure. 
Justin. <laughs> you might want to cover your ears. Is this how the cameras they have later in Ink Morpork work? Yep. No. Wait, what? Oh, wait, is it? Is yeah, it? it is. Yeah, they use picture amps. Okay, that's what I was wondering. I feel like a lot of stuff, like, I don't know, a lot of stuff gets started here. Like, Two Flower leaves ripples behind him. Just I thought that accident. Otto Shriek used, um, used film. Maybe, but the the ones that the watch uses are, Like, I seem to remember them turning up later. Oh, yeah. Like, the common ones are imps. I think Otto uses film, though. Fascinating. But you're right, though, because he has to hide from the light. Right? Anyway, uh, that's just a spoiler aside uh, that I was wondering about. Try not to wiki too much. Justin. In my in my role here as the person with no future context, um, I will I will do my duty and um, I should call it, obliviate any memory of this with alcohol later tonight. So let's see. We've talked about two flower. We've talked about rinse wind. We've talked about the picture imp. We've talked about the luggage. Uh, should we talk a little bit about I guess the other major major-ish character who kind of disappears later, uh, Hrun. He's very clearly the traditional swords and sandal, uh, sword and sandals, uh, barbarian, sort of in the mold of Conan. Yeah, and I think much more the the book, or the, the literary Conan than any, like, on-screen depictions of him. Yeah, this, uh, I have just enough context to be like, is this? And then want to wiki it, but then, like, I know wikiing it would make things worse for me. <laughs> the word I used to describe him in my notes was a jobber. Like, for wrestling, where he's just, like, he knows his job. And it's and he knows his role. And he knows exactly how to play it. Interestingly, though, he actually kind of shares a parallel with Rincewind in his worldview. In that he, in his own way, he sees everything as logical and, you know, making sense. Uh, for example, um, you find choke apples under a choke apple tree, he said. You find treasure under altars. Logic. Yeah, he's definitely like, uh, he, it's like he's, he's, he's a punch card barbarian. <laughs> like, he's very good at his job. Yeah, he's very... Yeah, he's he's very aware of the tropes that he is immersed in. And he he has a magic sword. I think partly it's not just that he's a barbarian. He's a professional barbarian. He's been doing it so long that he's just so used to it. Oh, and that's that's another um trope tie-in cuz that's um that's definitely a callback to the um, the talking sword in Moorcock's books. And you could think of Rincewind himself as like an extremely incompetent Elric. That's a comparison that unfortunately is lost on me because I haven't read any of the Michael Moorcock books. My only awareness of Moorcock is from somebody bad-mouthing Moorcock when he got mentioned in a book that I liked as a kid. My only reference for him. The talking magic sword, though, that's like, I mean, that's pervaded. This is me for all the classic fantasy stuff, Literature though. pretty much everywhere. Um, do we want to maybe go into a little bit, or just a little bit, about sort of the three phases of the book? We get our little prologue where we get introduced to the cosmology of Discworld where we get everything about how the astronomy of it works, how this world theoretically at least functions, and I think somebody had a nice note about, like, just the details of it. Like, it, it's nonsense, but it's it's a nonsense that actually kind of works, which I kind of appreciate, because, like, a lot of fantasy worlds are like, it's basically Earth because I don't want to figure something else out. Which is it's fair and valid, but it's very cool when you get a different cosmology going. 
Yeah, like something that like you can actually like understand why the seasons would work that way and things like that. And the the edge is equatorial, whereas the center is Arctic. And the sun does, in fact, orbit around the disk world. <laughs> and light flows slowly. The speed of light is much slower on the disk. Yes, because it gets caught up in the magical field. Right. So the color of magic... <clears throat> We forgot to mention there is there are in fact eight colors on on the disc world and the eighth is octarine which is the magical color. It's a it's a greenish purple, right? I think something like that, yeah. And it tastes greasy. Yeah, I think that's magic in general. Feels greasy. Didn't they say tinny? I am deeply afraid of what it yeah. tastes like. I think yeah. tinny. Yeah. Uh, my favorite. Yeah. I mean, I, I right. enjoy that it keeps showing up, but I also like that at some point something mentions the Octarine fairy book, which is just chef kiss. Oh, of course, that is two flower. two flower. Bless his soul. He had the he had the little Octarine fairy book. And that's where he got his his vision of fairies as like good and pure and helpful. He would. Have you have you ever heard of the like the blue fairy book and the fake fairy? Oh book? yeah, I I had the All blue those, one yeah. as a child. Yeah, I, I just it's it's a very cute little reference. Yeah. There's a lot of those where it's like, eh, this doesn't really mean anything, but it's fun. And it's also interesting because it's also, the, the Little Blue Fairy book also bears no resemblance to, like, actual folk tales about the Fae. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where the Fae are bad news. Yeah, it's like a kind of Victorian kids book. I mean, why not? Oh, Andrew Lang. Yeah. Huh. I was assuming that this was like a Doyle or something. No. Like a what? Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, yeah. Nope. But it, it was Victorian era children's fairy stuff. So, I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle is mm -hmm. in that realm. Yeah. It was a lot of like flower fairies and stuff like that. And like idyllic miniature landscapes and not like far too many teeth. Uh, you know, this might not be too much of a spoiler. We will, in fact, see that kind of fay later. Multiple. Yes. Multiple. Sorry, that, see the, what later? The, the weird alien fay uh, much later. Ooh, fun. Yes. That's a good book. Can we talk about the amount of weird-ass magic in this book? Because I love it. I just... I don't even know if I have much of a statement beyond that, except that it's really fun. Like, that's where I had the most fun with this book, was oh, when just shit wait just until got weird. Sorcerer. Yeah. That's what, book four? I think something like that, yeah. Plus, that's also when we find out the origin of Sapient Pearwood. Equal rights. Yeah. I thought that was the first right. one. Right. Equal rights. Uh, yeah. I got confused as to which was the first witches book. But equal rights is witches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was sitting there thinking, huh, why was I trying to read equal rights first? So once we get our cosmology out of the way, um, we get our nice little in media res with Rincewin and Two Flower running away from a burning Ankhmore pork. It does that quite frequently, though, so, you know. Oh, okay, so this is going to become yeah. a thing. Or at least it, it, in its history, it has several dozen times. Excellent. It's, it's a very tumultuous city made largely of wood. Valid. And bad decisions. Actually, maybe we should di do a diversion sideways into what Ankhmore Park is. Because it, it's actually two cities on the River Ankh. 
that have slowly accumulated into one. Uh, kind of like how London slowly absorbed outlying cities into itself. And its political structure is... There's the patrician, mm-hmm. who is... Yeah, it's run by a patrician. Yeah. In this one, it's nominally veterinary, although it the word of God says that it's veterinary, mm-hmm. but it's not really veterinary. Yeah. We're going to have to talk about first book. Yeah, there's a lot of characters yeah. like veterinary, like death, like several others that I don't think that Terry himself was happy with how they turned out. I, I feel like this kind of thing happens a lot with like longer running series that kind of take on a specific like life of their own and like get a kind of formula going like the first book or two the author hasn't gotten to the point where everything is solidified the way things are later yeah it's it's like parks and rec season one versus the rest of parks and rec you're not wrong my reference was going to be redwall book one but that's also that also works there's a horse in redwall there is there's a horse with a human-sized cart in Redwall Book. Oh, you're totally right. That's where Clooney the Scourge appears. Yeah. Yeah, I was a big fucking Redwall nerd I when mean, I was about 13. Like I I I just had the I just had the timeline memorized for a while. I used to be able to date and um, because book I was that kid in the chronology given on like given the mm. state of the bell. I love that this is a deeply sad stage we all went through. <laughs> I mean, I, I was also a Redwall fan. However, I think that the, the interesting thing to sort of yank us back towards Discworld, eventually the Jake's books kind of fell into the same formula, whereas Discworld, yeah. they continue to grow and change and develop this world. Um, and they get deeper and mm-hmm. more interesting. Yeah. Like, we'll, we'll get to that, but they definitely do. Yeah, we're doing a lot of, we'll, well get to that this episode. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to see it out of context. Well, it's, it's actually interesting because I've already started in on Light Fantastic, and the books definitely find their footing very fast, actually. Like, death is properly death in book two. In a way that he wasn't in book one. So, like, when we've got Ankh-Morpork, Park, it's nominally two cities, correct? We've got our richer... We've got our richer Ankh side. And the, the poorer Morpork. Um, which, there wasn't, I don't think, a ton mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And I've been told that uh, it, it, especially later on, Terry mm-hmm. does not hold back yeah. on his uh, social views. That is something about Discworld that I am very familiar with. Um, but if, but in the in our prologue where we get our burning Ankhmore pork, there was a particular line that stood out to me. By now, the whole of downtown Moorpork was alight, and the richer and worthier citizens of citizens of Ankh on the far bank were bravely responding to the situation by feverishly demolishing the bridges. I just remember, like, actually audibly saying, God damn. Oh, just wait until we get to the Vimes theory of economic inequality. (sighs) I think everyone's encountered that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yep. There's Ankh-Morpork Pork in a nutshell for you. He does not pull his punches. Also, the Ankh is deeply, deeply poisonous. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the... <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure <laughs> That's that... That's the worst way you could have described it. I think that demolishing the bridges doesn't even help because I'm pretty sure it's flammable. <laughs> flammable and also probably yeah. you could walk it across it at a brisk stroll. I also don't think it helped because the ships were already on fire, but... I might be wrong. The the Ankh yeah, uh, river itself gets far more developed mm-hmm. as the series goes along. Oh, yeah, perfect. as well as the very interesting uh, socio political structures that holds Ankh Morpork 
kind of more together than not. Oh my god, the fucking nonsense political structure. I love it. Yeah, the guilds. We saw a hint of that here Mm -hmm. with the Assassins and Thieves guilds, but even they aren't... But it's nothing like how they're gonna be. And thankfully, certain things that are used in this book never appear again, like the slave pits. We don't ever have to talk about those again, thankfully. Yep, never again. However, we will talk about the Seamstress's guild, but We'll get there. Yes. Yes, the seamstress is good. Oh, I like It's very good. So, Justin, Justin, what do you think the seamstress's guild does? I'm just going to, ass- like, I'm just assuming from the fact that you're asking me that it's going to be something important or, like, awesome. Interesting. Interesting guess. That's actually dope. Okay. Um, so, yes, my, my guess right... That or that or they're just a, that or they're just a group of political fixers. You're not wrong. Okay, cool. Um, so we've we've got we've got our Ankh-Mor Park. Um, so we should also probably talk about for for those of us who um, not wrong, just are starting off here. Why the hell is death such a big character in this book? <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> well. I mean, it's sort of established because of how <laughs> how the collection of souls works. Well, I mean, it's it's I something don't really that will. Yeah, I do find it interesting. So, in this book, it's established that death has to come personally for right. wizards, which implies that that's like special. Mm-hmm. Which was actually not yeah. my impression of death before, so that's interesting. Well, wizards, wizards can see death, and cats can see death. I'm not sure if that's actually been but like people keep saying, "I'm a wizard. Death has to come for me personally," mm-hmm. and I'm like, "I oh, remember death." In other when we books. get to Mort, which is another one of my favorite books. Uh, yeah, I'm excited will, to see what happens. See... I'm just like, I wonder if this is inconsistent yeah. or confusing to me. There, there's a, I mean, they, they, this is another one of those things that Terry returns to and returns to and builds and sort of retroactively explains and fixes mm-hmm. as he goes. Um, yeah, there's, there's a yeah. death. There's a reason that death is a kind of arc in uh, the Discworld books. I honestly, I could see there being, like, a cool thematic thing. The idea that, like, again, death comes to everyone. That's, like, a theme that turns up in all sorts of different places. I think that there is also potentially the idea that some people can find their way forward on their own and others need help from death personally. Mm. They need a gentle explanation. Yeah. Yeah, we we will we'll need to hold fire on on death because death becomes very important. Yeah, I also love all the yeah, fucking gods. The lady. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The lady is very the lady good. Is excellent. Also, fate literally having both fate and death literally just having it in for Redmond. Mm-hmm. Buddy, make better <laughs> enemies. Okay, so what did he do? Or is this? I'll find out later. Escape them. No, literally oh, right, it's in this right, book. Right. Uh, Death is pissed because he missed their appointment in Cephalopolis yeah. or whatever. Uh, Fate's pissed because he keeps... I mean, again, he's playing against the lady, but also because Rincewind keeps escaping him. He's like, I'm over it. We're done. Well, Death is Death is Rincewind an independent actor. He's, he's his own yeah. thing. Separately, they dislike Rincewind because yeah. he keeps escaping. Yeah. Okay, so it's so it's just a. I was wondering if there was something more than that. It's just death is a very stressed bureaucrat. He's got a job. Yeah, he's got a job. I which I appreciate, and so and Faith's just a bad loser. Okay. I feel like there's literally a quote from Death that's very funny about this, but I don't know if I highlighted it or not. Hold on a second. Well, and Death and Rincewind also develop a very interesting relationship as the series goes. Yeah. 
Because even in book two, Death is a very different character from what we saw here. He's not an asshole anymore. I just want to share the quote from Death that I liked. He now had a hobby. There was something about the wizard that irked him beyond measure. He didn't keep appointments, for one thing. I'll get you yet, Cully, said Death in the voice like the slamming of leaden coffin lids. See if I don't. Yes, Death speaks in all caps. And I believe canonically is Christopher is just Christopher Lee. That that is one thing I know about Discworld is that it's Christopher Lee's voice. Yeah, so I, there's a lot that does happen in this book. There's a lot that I don't honestly feel all that wedded about talking about because again, color of magic is very important in that it starts everything. I don't find it hugely important overall besides the fact that it's the beginning. Yeah. And one of the other interesting things about the color of magic versus all of the others is the astounding lack of footnotes. There yeah. is one footnote in this book. There's there's one extremely long just footnote. just wait. Just wait. I'm actually really excited because every Discworld book I've read I've read as, except for Monstrous Regiment, I've read as an audiobook. So I don't know how much of the shit I've been reading has been footnotes. Because there's no indication in the audiobooks. In my experience, at least with like, uh, with the, the, the one, the one Terry Pratchett book I have read before this project, which was Good Omens, they just put the, they yeah. just like put the footnote material in the plain text. So it was just read like normal, so I don't know how that's... I don't know how that would be with other ones. My impression is the audiobooks do that as well. I just haven't been able to tell. Well, we'll find out. I think I have one last thing that I wanted to talk about with this book, which is... So we've been talking about a lot about how the series evolves over time, but I think Rinswin himself actually does a lot of evolving just within this book that the Rinswin that we see at the beginning is not the same Rinswin that we see at the end, that he's still um, primarily motivated by his own survival, but he loses the con artist aspect that we see at the start. Like the Rinswin that we see in the first scenes sees Two Flower and is like, there's a sucker and tries to fleece him for all he's worth. Because he, because Rincewind is a citizen of Ankh-Morpork at that point. Yes. But as Rincewind travels and sees more of the world, he definitely changes. I think that might also be because, uh, I at least maybe a small part, because he does leave Ankh-Morpork and thus changes subgenre. Or at least he, he, he moves from being involved in what is basically a Coen Brothers movie to actually having to go be in a Robert E. Howard novel. Coen Brothers characters don't exist in Robert E. Howard novels, so he has to at least change somewhat. He doesn't have as many people he can fleece out in the wild. Yeah, I buy that take because it's a very, it's a book that's intended to broadly speaking be a parody of these things so it has to then also be very genre aware and the one parody that we did not cover is cosmic horror oh yes we got we got a tiny tiny little bit of that with our um tentacle monster yes belshamaroth yeah it's it's in there just a sliver and later is referred in later books is referred to as part of the dungeon dimension, I believe. Yeah. Oh God. Things with too many tentacles and too many angles. Things with seven plus one legs. The dungeon dimension sounds like a X crawl uh, adventure. I want to just follow Two Flower and God. What's his fucking name? The Sea Troll. What is his name? Teth. Yeah, Tethys. Tethys. I want to follow Tethys and Two Flower to literal other worlds. I I love the disc world, but the fact that it immediately opened up a whole cosmos of other worlds, also I'm like, sold. Yeah. Probably won't show up again. <laughs> then the whole, fa- the whole joke about the, the reason that the Kingdom of Kroll is very interested in this, in this space mission is because they're trying to determine the 
uh, particular gentleman or lady bits of the turtle upon which the disc rests, uh, mainly because they're concerned that if the turtle ever gets to where they're going, they want to know whether the disc is going to be on top or on the bottom. Big yeah. So my my thing with this though is that turtles do not have external genitalia. Yep. So I am really wondering what is in that ship. I I think it's more of a question of how smart are the Krullian scientists anyway? I mean, they did design a space program. They could just be engineers, though. Yeah. They didn't design the spaceship. They brought in a guy and then killed him instead of keeping him around to help. What they did design was the circumvents, which is pretty yeah. amazing, actually. Okay, can we... Can, uh, okay, so I want to go about another Krullian thing, which is a part that made me freaking just, like, laugh because it's the it's the exact thing that works once you've already... Established, I, I, the hydrophobes. Oh, God. Those only work... Oh, my if God, you have yeah. the dragons right before it, I think. Because once you've got that belief magic sort of buy-in, you can get away with the hydrophobes. Because yeah. the dragon, the dragons are just like you've got this. Okay, we we summon dragons through belief in it, and we have this focus for it. Okay, so that's establishing that like extreme belief or emotions or stuff can have magical effects. The hydrophobes are obviously the logical conclusion to this. Yes. Can I also say that the hydrophobes are a perfect example? Hydrophobes and like the time magic on that wine bottle. Ritzwin's real power is taking advantage of Chekhov's guns. <laughs> yes, he does it like three or four times in this book, and it's wonderful every time. The time he's like, "You said you could read minds, right?" To the dryad when he's struggling not to say the spell, and then the dryad does, and that's how he defeats her. Uh, the time magic on the wine bottle, just the exact right moment for that to wear off. Just even, like, establishing the hydrophobes earlier on, and then they're able to, like, get away from them just by, like, spitting on them. He, they're just... He's so good at he's taking... Very clever. Spitting on the hydrophobes was so good. <laughs> I guess technically Two Flower did that, but just in general, Rincewind's story is just taking advantage of something that was set up way before that you didn't think would be important in that way. I, I feel like Rince... Uh, okay, so in the current edition of Call of Cthulhu, there's a check you can make that's called an idea roll. And if I remember right, it's like just a simple intelligence check. And if you roll it, if you succeed on the check, your GM will give you an idea. Interesting. Oh my god. That's exactly what he is. He's a wizard with no spell slots. He's a wizard slots. with no spell slots. And he's really squishy. So he has to figure out what in the environment can help him because he can't fucking fight. Okay, he is Batman without any of the trading or tools. But don't you ever get that moment in an RPG where you're like, okay, me fighting here is not going to be super effective. What can help me in the surrounding area? He's just that all the time. Things happen at him and he sort of reacts. To bring in another Terry Pratchett tie-in, it's ineffable. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he is a pawn of the lady, or possibly the lady's queen. I'm not entirely sure. I, I like that god. And the whole, all the rules around how you can't speak her name. or Oh yeah, that's delightful. Like, that. like, otherwise she will leave. Yeah. Right, and you can't pray, f- you can't pray to her or she won't pay attention to you. And Oh, I just realized another reference. Luck be a lady yep. tonight. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> or lady luck. Yeah. Uh, but of course, now that I've yeah. said her name, she won't show up for me. So great. Rip. The complete discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license.
Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. The music for this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. The intro music is Take a Chance. The outro is Fuzzball Parade. Both are by Kevin McLeod, and both are used under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. Connect with the show on Twitter at atuinpod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>